We are continuing in our series for Advent, picking up where we kind of left off in the fall. So in the fall, we looked through the life of Abraham. In this Advent series, we've been thinking about ways in which Jesus fulfills all these things that Abraham was waiting for. And we'll pick up this morning in Romans 4. So Romans 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we, shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God gives us his word so that we would know the good news of his son, so we would believe in him, so that we would rest in him, so that we would have confidence in what he is doing in our lives. So let's pray that he would speak by his word. Father, this morning we have uh, a lot of chaotic things going on in our lives. But we come to be reminded that we can have peace in Jesus. By what Jesus has done, our lives are not governed by the chaos. So help us to see what it means to trust more more completely in Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. At the beginning of The Office, in the pilot episode, Michael Scott is doing one of these interviews in front of the camera, and uh, he's, he's asked what he's most proud of. And he says, the, my proudest moment here was not when I increased profits by 17% or when I cut expenses without losing a single employee. No, no, no. It was when a, a young Guatemalan guy, first job in the country, barely spoke English, he came to me and he said, and I'm not going to do the terrible accent that Michael Scott does. And he said, Mr. Scott, would you be the godfather of my child? Wow. Wow. Didn't work out. We had to let him go. (laughs) Michael Scott has asked what he is proud about. And if you've ever done job interviews, maybe you got some kind of question like that. It's a pretty standard job interview question, and it's the worst. It says a lot about you. Of course, it says a lot about Michael Scott, right? He kind of backdoor brags about, about the uh, profits that he helped increase or the expenses he helped cut. He, and then, of course, he highlights that this other guy really thought he was great, even though apparently Michael didn't care one lick about him. We boast a lot about, about a lot of weird things. Uh, we want to get credit for a lot of things. And, of course, it's fine to celebrate good things with people. That's fine. 
It's fine to have people appreciate what you do, but we so often are coming back looking to make sure we get credit, make sure everybody knows what happened. And here's the thing, even if you're not the kind of person that's going to put yourself forward to ask that others recognize you, what will you do? You'll sit there and you'll stew when they don't. They should have known. They should have seen it. And resentment builds and builds. And the reality is that we relate to God exactly like we relate to other people on this front. We think that God should see what we've done and be impressed. And the reality, of course, is that God does see what we've done and He is underwhelmed. Not very impressed. This passage is, on the one hand, about God, what God wants from us, but it's also about the connection from what we expect from God in return as well. And the kind of dynamic interplay between those two, this is about either the wages of work or the gift of faith, or gift by faith, I should say. The wages of work or the gift by faith. So let's think about the wages of work for a second. Uh, the whole, we're, we're kind of stepping into this book of Romans, and if you've not read the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans before, it is one of the densest theological pieces of the Bible. And we can't possibly cover all of it this morning, but I do want to give you just a little background because that helps set up what Paul is doing here. It begins, of course, like any other letter with some introduction, some opening, but then about halfway through chapter 1, and really through the halfway through chapter 3, so about two solid chapters worth, Paul goes through and explains how, look, everybody stands under God's judgment. Not exactly the most fun part <laughs> to read, but, you know, he talks about how he as an Israelite, as a Jew, was under the law and knew what he was supposed to do, and did he do it? No. Did others do it? No. Were they perfect? No. But even if you didn't know all those things, even if you hadn't been part of Israel, you still prove that you know what God calls you to do, how to live, how to treat other people, and we're inconsistent with it. And so everyone is answerable to God. But then, midway through chapter 3, comes the good news that God's righteousness is shown by making righteous those who are unrighteous. He uses the word justify in there, which is our verbal form. The problem with English is we have, we're, you know, we're kind of a you know, linguistic mutt, right? So we have all these words that we inherit from different places. So we talk about righteousness, and then we use verbs like justify, but in the Greek, those are the same root term, Right? To be righteous and to be recognized as righteous. Right? To justify is to recognize that you're righteous. So what Paul is saying is that, look, if you come to God on the basis of your works, your performance, you're in trouble. But if you come as unrighteous by faith in Jesus you will be recognized as righteous. 
which is a little weird, to say the least. But think about how this plays out. He go, this is where we get into our passage here. As he begins into chapter 4, he says, let's think about Abraham. There's few people more significant, of course, to Paul as an Israelite than Abraham. He says, let's think about Abraham. Did Abraham come to God with what he had done? Now, if you were with us at all in the fall, you might know how over and over again we thought about how Abraham kept screwing up. No. He didn't. He wasn't considered righteous because of what he did. And in verse 4, Paul describes that mentality, right? He says, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And so if we come to God, in other words, thinking, look, I'm going to do a lot of good things, and God is going to recognize that. We are coming to God as if he's our employer, right? And we've done a lot of work for him, and so he owes us our wage. It's really kind of that simple, isn't it? And maybe that's your vision of God. Maybe that's the way you think of God, as this guy who's demanding that you do things for him. Or maybe, you know, we just are so caught up in our own default thinking in this way that it's hardly even worth describing because it seems so obvious, right? I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I do this for you, you'll do this for me. Because there are a lot of our relationships that are like that. And for good or ill, a lot of them are like that. And we think that's how it is. And so our moral performance, we see as work we're putting in for a wage. And however we might think of that, that wage in terms of recognition by God, acknowledgement by Him, right? Uh, eternal life, all these other things. That's how we tend to think about it. I work for a wage. Of course, when we think about God himself, that assumes a lot of things, doesn't it? It assumes on the one hand that the bad things we do, sin, is relatively manageable. It assumes that the good things that we do are relatively untainted. Of course, it also assumes, and this may be the deepest problem, that mostly what we're talking about is actions. And we don't pay any attention to the issues of the heart, our motivations, our desires in the midst of all these different situations. And of course, we think we're being graded on a curve. Maybe that's <laughs> pretty obvious too, but we, we tend to think, well, at least I'm not like that person. Jesus actually tells a parable like that of some guy who's praying in the temple and thanking the Lord that he's not like these other people. And there's another guy over in the corner beating his chest saying, forgive me, a sinner. And it's actually the only time Jesus uses the word justify, I think, uh, off the top. <laughs> uh, he says, which one goes away justified? Not the guy who thought he was better, but the guy who came confessing his sin. In other words, the boasting mentality is actually always connected to a work 
for wages mentality. It always is. Because we're always thinking about how I stack up against other people. We fall into that all the time. And again, because maybe some of our relationships are like that. I mean, when I was in the Navy, we literally got ranked. Everybody that had the same, you know, well, everybody that had the same rank in terms of, you know, title, then got put in order, one to however many. <laughs> you know, you had to actually get stacked up against your peers. That's a terrible way of doing things, but that's how it worked. And that's how we tend to think about life, that it's that way. And we might think, well, I've got to be on the top. Or maybe I need to be in the top 10 percentile. Whatever it may be, right? We all have some imaginary cutoff where we think the curve <laughs> doesn't, you know, we're ahead of it. But that's how we think about it. And so we're always boasting. You may not say it out loud, right? You might have enough, <laughs> you might have enough awareness not to say it out loud that I think I'm better than all these other people here but you think it but it's there it's there in our attitude it's there when we see other people screw up and we think of course of course he would do that of course she would do that and what we want from God is a wage uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Amadeus. Of course, it won all sorts of awards. And it's a, it's a kind of fictionalized story of a rumor of a, of a kind of rivalry between uh, Mozart, you know, the famous composer, and another composer who was pretty famous at the time, but nobody really cares about anymore, named Salieri. And, uh, and near the beginning of the movie... Uh, Salieri, is, Salieri is young, and this is what he reports. He's, he's praying to God. He says, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear, Lord, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life and I will help my fellow man all I can. Most of us wouldn't be that overt about the exchange with God. But it is the wages mentality, isn't it? And we might not say it that way. We might not make it sound so conditional, but that's exactly what we think it is, right? I'm going to do this, and God's going to owe me. And maybe if you're a really disciplined person, maybe you do kind of convince yourself that you're making it work out. That you got in this bargain with God and he's supposed to pull through and maybe he's supposed to give you a comfortable life. Or maybe he's supposed to help you get ahead in your pursuits. You know, it's the strangest things that people think God owes them. He's never promised, but of course, it belies that we constantly fall into this wages mentality, right? And I have, maybe even unnoticed at a cognitive level, started to think, God owes me this. 
I'm working hard. I'm trying to be a good person. God owes me fill in the blank. And here's the thing. Every religion falls into this. Everyone. This is what Christianity devolves into when it misses this very point. It falls into a wages mentality. Of course, in the great monotheistic religions, right, that has an explicitly moral and moralistic overtone, right? You're supposed to be a good person, and there's a general stand because there's one God over everything. There's one standard we're all held to, and we're supposed to live up to it. Uh, Eastern religions seem a little more flexible, certainly when Western people encounter Eastern religions, think because there's less kind of moral absolutes, it's a little more flexible. But you, of course, you have to figure out what's the right thing to do in your situation, and karma stinks. You almost always come out on the losing end of karma as well. My point is, it's just a different form of the same kind of wages mentality. This is what I do, and I will be owed. So whether we take on a kind of classic moralistic stance, right? Be the kind of person that doesn't curse or smoke or chew or go out with girls who do or whatever, you know, whatever kind of terrible lines you've heard. Whether we take that kind of line or not, we're always thinking. This is the default human assumption. I do this, and I will be owed this kind of life. And here's the thing. Even if you don't think much about God, maybe you're literally atheistic or agnostic, but maybe you just find that I don't think about God all that much in my day in and day out. Even when God fades into the background, we're still constantly trying to convince ourselves that we're good enough. In fact, I mean, there's a whole, you know, a lot of humanistic authors are spend a lot of time trying to convince ourselves we can be good. We can be good people. That's a major theme in atheist, agnostic, humanistic authors, is that we can still be good people. And again, maybe we even back away from the moralistic impulse, and we think, well, okay, I'm going to be the kind of person that has a low-carbon footprint. I'm going to be the person that eats right. I'm going to be the person that spends their money right or doesn't spend that much money. Or I'm going to be the person that exercises in a certain way that's going to maximize my well-being. I'm going to be the kind of person that has the right social connections. You get what I'm saying. We constantly invent ways to think of ourselves as better than others. We're constantly trying to find a way where we stack up. And the wages of doing things that way are going to be better. We're going to have, a be- we're going to have better health. We're going to have a more comfortable life. We're going to enjoy life more. So that even when the eternal fades away in our imaginations, we're still proving the point that our default setting is to think that we have to work in order to earn a good life. That we have to be good so that we will get good things. No wonder 
No wonder we are crushed by anxiety and depression. I'm not trying to say that's the only thing at play. There's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of causes. But certainly one connective tissue is a question of, am I good enough? Am I good enough to deserve a good life? And what if it's not working the way I think it should? What does that say about me? Of course, the conclusions about myself are crushing. And if I've got no one else to blame, then I'll have to blame myself. Obviously, mental health is a much bigger category and it's connected to a whole lot of other things. But a through line in human existence from the very beginning has been, can I prove that I live a worthwhile life? Will I get a good life for all that I've done? And I'm, this is the bad news. It's the bad news that Paul opens with. It's the bad news I've got to tell you, not just of the Bible. It's the bad news of life. No. It's not going to work out. If you want to tout out your good performance before other people, how many are that impressed? Not most. And I really got to tell you, if you're going to tout that out before God... Be prepared for a very underwhelming response. God is not oppressed. That's, in one sense, the freeing reality of the bad news. There's an old hymn that says, Put your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Because our sense that we can earn a good life is a fool's errand. And the quicker we learn that, the better. But it is different. There is, the way that God deals with us is not that way. That is to say, not if we come by faith. Because there is a gift that's only received by faith. It is the gift of Christ himself. And this is what Paul starts to unpack then. In verse 3, he quotes from Genesis 15. He, he, he's relaying this story. Genesis 15 is a, a moment where God is reiterating his promises with Abraham and then formally institutes his covenant with him. And we're told in verse 6 of chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I mean, righteousness is a performance category. <laughs> Are you good or not? Is what you've done good or not? And we're told this bizarre thing, and again, this is back in Genesis, you know. God counts his belief as righteousness. That's pretty counterintuitive. And then, get, get what Paul does here. He says, okay, he illustrates with Abraham, and he'll, by the way, go back to Abraham if we kept reading this passage. But as an aside, for three verses at the end, six through eight, he says, oh yeah, and if Abraham's not enough, how about King David? 
David knew this too. And he quotes from Psalm 32. Psalm 32 may or may not be right off the top of your head, but it's helpful to look at the very last line in verse 8. He said, you know, he's been saying, blessed are those who are forgiven, all these things. The man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's the same accounting language. In Hebrew, it's cheshev. It's that guttural that you, you never want to do a no mic. It's, it's tough. But cheshev uh, is this accounting for sin. That's why Paul picks it up, right? He's saying, ah, Abraham, or David was thinking about the same thing that was said of Abraham. Blessed is the person whose actions are not counted against them. who receive by faith what God provides. In other words, we receive something as a gift. When you get something for nothing, it's a gift. Right? It's Christmas time. That's what you're going to do. Right? You're going to give people a gift. Now, some people will give you gifts back, yes. But you didn't earn all those gifts. This is especially true when you're a kid, right? Because you get disproportionate amount of gifts when you're a kid. Did you earn all those? No. Why were they given to you? It's a gift. From people who love you. It's a gift. It's not what you've earned. It's a gift. Paul will explicitly use this language a little later in Romans, in chapter 6, because he'll say, for the wages of sin, in other words, the wages of what we've done, if we want to cart out our record, it's sin. That's your record. The wages of sin is death. But what? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift... The gift isn't even justification, being justified. The gift is Christ. Now, Christ comes with everything. It's an all-inclusive package. But it's Christ. What you're given is Jesus and what he accomplished, his righteousness. The eternal life of the resurrection that lies ahead even the greatest blessing of all, to see the face of God. That the, the gift that we're given in the gospel, the good news, in contrast to the bad news of what we earn, is the good news is that God has given the gift of his son. And like any gift, how does it work? You just receive it. You just receive it. There's no way, believe me, there's no way of paying this back. And I think some Christians get somehow in that kind of weird loop, right? They know it's a gift, but then they think, oh, but God wants me to pay him back. Well, first off, you know, of course, that's not going to work. But it misses the gift, right? It's somehow, and this is the thing, the more that you see a gift as an obligation put on you, it cheapens the gift, now, that's what somebody actually implies, then it's not really a gift. 
It's a bribe. It's a tool of manipulation. But if it really is a gift, then, you know, scrambling to try to somehow repay them cheapens the gift rather than receiving it with love. And so this is the truth in verse 5, that God justifies the ungodly. That is the great scandal of the good news. That's the scandal of the gospel, that God justifies, that is to say, counts righteous the ungodly. That's the good news. No wonder so many people dislike it. No wonder we kind of dislike it, who even believe it sometimes. Because we don't like the fact that God wants to justify the ungodly. Especially if we start to fall into that trap of thinking, well, I've achieved a little bit in godliness now that I've been a Christian for a while. How can God keep receiving all of these messed up people? That's the scandal of the good news, that God justifies the ungodly. That what God does is receive us, not by what we've done, but by the gift of his Son. All we do is receive that gift. That really is all that is required, is to receive the gift. And I know what you'll say. You'll say, yeah, but aren't we supposed to do some things? Right? There's some, seems like there's some imperatives in the Bible. I don't know if you noticed. Are we supposed to do something? By the way, that's, we'll talk about that next week. But to ease that point, yeah, we're supposed to do things, but not as a wage. Or I should say, not as work for a wage. And whenever we're falling back into that, I need to do this so that God will X, Y, or Z. We are falling back into that works for wages mentality. No, the gift of God is his son. And like any gift, all you can do is receive it. That's what faith is really all about, right? Faith doesn't mean that you simply believe the propositions. I agree to these things. I mean, don't get me wrong, faith has to involve some kind of knowledge of the truth, but that's not really what it is at the end of the day. It's not merely that knowledge. It's actually trusting in those things. So when, when, you, when you, for example, profess the faith, when we, when we say the Nicene Creed or something like that, we say, I believe, what we're not saying is, I assent to the fact that there is one Godfather, maker of heaven and earth. We're not saying we assent to the fact. We're saying something more. We're saying, I trust in the Father. I trust in the one who is the maker of heaven and earth. I trust in his only Son, our Lord. I trust in his Holy Spirit. I trust in the gifts that he brings of the church and of the resurrection of the dead and of life everlasting. What we're saying is I trust them. That's why there are other things that are, you know, doctrines that are not in there. Like, it is true that you need to know that you're a sinner. Or that 
you are under the influence of the world or the devil. But we don't say, I believe in the devil because we don't trust in him. Yeah, I mean, we agree to the, that, that he's a reality, right? I mean, that's part of the whole thing. But I don't trust in him. I trust in the Lord. What it means to have faith, then, is not merely to get the doctrine right. It's not merely to know the truth of the matter. It is to trust in the giver of the gift. It is to know, not merely as a proposition, but as a kind of lived reality that he has given this in love. And so I receive it in love. There, is, uh, there, there are lists that come out every few years. I know Forbes often does these of most trusted professions. These are infamous among ministers because uh, if clergy keep going down the list. Um, which maybe as a category we have earned. Uh, you know, the bottom of the list is always, you know, lawyers, politicians. I won't indict any lawyers or politicians that might be here with us, but uh, maybe that as a category has been earned as well, that lack of trust. You know who's at the top, like all the time? It's like nurses and teachers, right? Because people who have to go to work and deal with just a lot of awfulness every day. A lot of people behaving badly. (laughs) Kids throwing temper tantrums. Patients throwing temper tantrums. You know, the reason people trust them Again, it's not really about individual thing, but it's people saying, look, these, they show up and they do this job even though people treat them terribly. Again, whether all that's fair or not, I don't really care, but the point is, right, trust is a thing that is proven. Trust is a thing that's proven out. I mean, you can tell me to trust you for a variety of reasons, Certainly politicians tell us to trust them all the time. But what do their actions prove? I mean, I guess that's the real question, but this isn't a sermon about politics. This is about what it means to trust someone. Do you trust them? So how do we, why do we know that God is trustworthy? How? Why? And the answer is in the gift itself. It is Jesus himself. When I started in ministry, I remember this idea of justification being, you know, it was really transformative for me when I was young and started to understand it. And I remember teaching on it, you know, it seemed like a lot of times and thinking, it's not really making a lot of sense to, yeah, I was working with, primarily students at the time, and thinking, this doesn't seem to be getting traction, right? They don't seem to feel the relief (laughs) of being justified. And what I started to realize, and I'm sure much of this is my own fault, (laughs) was that they heard me talking about some sort of paper transaction. God had taken the ledger, had opened it up, had erased, (laughs) 
you know, what the negative numbers that I had, right, giving me positive numbers, and close the book. But the point is, of course, that the accounting is not made in dollars and cents. The accounting is not made as a paper transaction. The accounting is made in the body and blood of Jesus. See, the reason we can trust in the Lord and the reason we can give up on that kind of works for wages mentality, the reason we can trust that everything that he has given us in Christ is actually effective is because of the way that Jesus did it. Because Jesus entered in to this mess of a world that we've made. That he left behind. The glory, I mean, not just the outward accoutrement of being God, but the actual love of the Father experienced uninterrupted and entered in. Because he lived the kind of life we couldn't live. The only person who actually could say that they have worked and done all things well they have accomplished everything that was demanded of them, heart and soul, spirit and body. And because he laid down his life. So that what God is doing is not merely some kind of accounting finagling. But he is actually looking at the life, <laughs> the incarnation, the life lived, And the death died on our behalf. And saying that is sufficient for anyone who would come. So that we don't come having to prove that we are worth it. Because by that we will always, always, always fail. But because Jesus has given his life, then the very righteousness that he had earned is ours. So God doesn't even see us, not, you know, not merely as forgiven, but actually as righteous. You get the difference? You didn't go back to some sort of neutral spiritual state. Right? In God's eyes, you are either righteous or sinful. You are either living your life for his glory or you're living it for your own. There's no neutral state. You're either in sin or you're righteous. And what Jesus has actually accomplished is to move us from those who are counted as sinful to those who are counted as righteous. Again, not just as some kind of clerical finagling, but because he's given his life for us, his perfect life. Paul just says this near the end of chapter 3, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, that's you and me. And are justified, that is to say, counted righteous by his gift, by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that is to say, an appeasement by his blood. This isn't some made up interaction some abstract way in which God just kind of deals with people. It is what God has done by sending his son into the world for sinners. It is what he has done 
what the Son has done by giving up His perfect life and by giving His body and blood for us. You see, the cross is always the end point. And it's tempting to sort of imagine Christmas as this standalone event of the incarnation being this beautiful thing where God enters in, took on human flesh, but He entered in to die. The reason Jesus came, the reason that the Son of God took on flesh, was born 2,000 so years ago in a manger, was so that he would live a perfect life and die in our place. The cross was always the end point. And this is why Jesus, it's actually meant to be an insult by his critics. He's called the friend of sinners. And people thought that was an insult to Jesus. <laughs> but they had no idea what he was doing. Because yes, he's a friend of sinners. He wants to be a friend for sinners. That is what he came to do. Is to be a friend for sinners. To give his life for us. It is because you and I are sinners that he came. It is because you and I are sinners that he died and rose again. It is because... God justifies the ungodly that we're here. And listen, if you are a Christian already and you are discouraged and struggling with your sin, you need to ask yourself, am I falling back into thinking that I'm unworthy of what God has given? Half the struggle is beating ourselves up thinking we are unworthy. And the good news is that God justifies the ungodly, even you. And God wants no part of your good works that you bring to earn his respect, to earn his delight, to earn his love, because he's already given the gift. He's not looking for you to do that. He wants you to enjoy the gift. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're not quite sure where you are. I think there's a lot of people wandering around Charleston that are not quite sure what they are. Then understand this. This is the good news, the gift of God, that he justifies the ungodly. So if you are walking around and you feel guilty, that is the good news for you. Is God is not looking for you to prove anything about your worthwhileness to him. All he says is receive what my son has done for you. And if this is a more abstract exercise for you, <laughs> then let me be clear, it's never an abstract exercise. This is the question of what you will do. How you will give an account for your life. Are you trying to prove that you are a good person that is worthy of respect? That is worthy of love? That is worthy of good things? Or will you receive the gift of God? That is His Son in your place.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you justify the ungodly by the work of your Son. And that everyone who is a believer is someone ungodly that you have redeemed. Whether this is the first time we're really hearing that or whether it's the thousandth time we're hearing that, Lord. I pray that you would show us how beautiful and rich and endless the gift of your Son is. That even this Advent season, as we're heading towards Christmas, that we would be reminded that you are the giver of gifts and that we would simply receive it by faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.